You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Let's pray together. Father, so much chaos, so much darkness, such an ancient scenario that is so unfamiliar for us. And yet, your light shines, your grace abounds, your mercy is more. We are destitute despised, forsaken, and yet, Father, you show yourself to be our all. And so would you do that here as we look at this confusing but hopeful story in Genesis 29 and 30? Exalt your son. Help us to get the details right, not be distracted by the wrong things, but get to the main points. May Jesus be exalted among us. May our hearts be stirred in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The most important nation in the history of the world started as one colossal family mess. Last week, Pastor Jonathan said that a major theme in Genesis is God's remarkable ability to weave his masterpiece with our human messes. Despite the darkness, despite our sin, God brings his purposes to pass. We see it again and again and again in Genesis. And not just despite human evil, but in and through human evil and sin and frailty, God brings about his purposes. He weaves his masterpiece with our messes. And we see it again today in Genesis 29 and 30. Bigamy, polygamy, buying and selling among family, when things should be received, using tricks to get your nephew to marry the wrong cousin first. This is a mess. This story raises several obvious questions just on the surface. And I know if we don't address the obvious questions, they're going to have them in your mind. So let let me start by bulleting very quickly three of the obvious surface questions and give you just a little, I hope, slightly satisfying answer so that we can move on. There's more to say, of course, but I want us to get into the details of the story and see what God has for us deep down, not just on our surface questions. So first question, what should we think about cousins marrying each other? This is an important question for all of us. For kids, right? Listen up, kids. Shouldn't duck or dodge these questions. These are vastly different times. Perhaps the human genome was purer then and hadn't been affected by sin in the same way it is today. Or perhaps they experienced the frequent deleterious genetic effects of cousins marrying, and they didn't yet know why. Whatever the case 4,000 years ago, we do not allow it today, and it's for good reason. The Bible's clear on that as well, too, later on. What, the question number two, what about Jacob marrying two women? Sisters at that. Does Genesis, does Gen, does Genesis condone polygamy? Strange words. I'm not used to using these words. Does Genesis condone polygamy? While Genesis itself, not later in the Bible, does not expressly condemn a man having more than one wife, the clear teaching of Genesis 2, as we saw, is that marriage is one man making a lifelong commitment to one woman. It's just Eve. There weren't multiple women there in the Garden of Eden. Just Eve. And each of these stories 
where a man has multiple wives, not the least of which is Genesis 29, always spell trouble. Genesis is very clear about what happens when there are multiple wives. It never goes well. We'll see that. These stories are flashing red lights. Do not do this. Third question. What about Jacob having children with his wife's servants? We saw this with Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 16. When Sarah was unable to conceive, she adopted a common practice in those ancient days, in her time, and she convinced her husband to have a child with her servant Hagar. God plainly did not approve. It did not go well there for Abraham and Sarah as it does not go well here. Even pagans learned that this common ancient practice was terrible. And when Jacob and Rachel and Leah take up the practice here, it is not commended, but is evidence of one colossal family mess. It's like an all-out childbearing duel breaks out between Leah and Rachel in this chapter. Crazy. This is domestic madness. And this is our spiritual heritage. This is us. And so we step back again, and we say here at the outset, the most important nation, the Hebrew people, the Jews, the most important nation in the history of the world began as one colossal family mess. Abraham and Hagar, Jacob and Esau, now Rachel and Leah, and throw in Zilhah and Bilhah. These are shockingly earthy stories of origin. You don't make these up. The Jews don't get together later and say, what kind of seedy stories can we make up about how we started as a people? This is real life. These are real stories. These were dark days. How much do we take for granted in the church age the effects of the pouring out of God's spirit on us? Jesus said in John 7, 39, as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. John says that in John 7, 39. Where would we be without the spirit? So don't discount the Holy Spirit as you look back on the chaos. And yet, in it all, in all the sin, in all the distortion, God is at work bringing his purposes to pass. He is bringing 12 tribes of Israel out of Jacob and his 12 sons and four wives. And God is preserving and proliferating his covenant people, including the line of his son, as we'll see. God is weaving his masterpiece from human messes. And I hope you take at least some small encouragement from that this morning. Perhaps your life feels like a mess right now. Part of your life, maybe, maybe some aspect of your life feels like one colossal mess. You've been taken advantage of, like we'll see Jacob is. You've been neglected or unloved, as we'll see Leah was. Maybe you felt forgotten by God, as we'll see was the case with Rachel. And this chapter, in all of its unsettling disarray, has something to say to you this morning. So let's set the stage. We'll start off here a little setting the stage in verses 1 to 14. And then we're going to consider each of the three main characters. Jacob first, then Leah, and finish off with Rachel. The chapter is clearly structured that way. If you want a sense of the structure of the chapter, there is uh, Jacob being kind of the, the main figure from 29.1 through, through 30. 
Then in, chapter, in verse 31, we see it turns to Leah. Leah's 31 to 35. That's the end of chapter 29. Then chapter 30, verse 1, turns to Rachel. Rachel, verses 1 to 8. Then you'll see back, verse 9, right back to Leah. And Leah's the subject then until chapter 22, until verse 22, when we're back to Rachel. So back and forth there between the sisters from Jacob to the two wives. So setting the stage then. We have seen in our study here on Genesis how God spoke to Jacob's mother, Rebekah. While Jacob and his twin brother Esau were still in the womb, and the most significant word there is right at the end of the prophecy. This is Genesis 25, 23. The older shall serve the younger. Esau was the older. Jacob was the younger. The world's way was for the older to be blessed. But God tells Rebekah, he does things differently. He turns the world's wisdom on its head. And so as we saw two weeks ago, when it comes time for Isaac to extend the blessing of Abraham to the next generation, Isaac very naturally chooses his oldest son, Esau. And Rebekah, who is a good woman of sterling character, knowing what God has told her, conspires with her son Jacob to trick Isaac so that the blessing comes to the younger like God said it would. Rebekah is a good woman, and Jacob is wise to listen to his mother. The plot is successful. Esau is furious and wants to kill his brother Jacob. And so both Rebekah and Isaac tell Jacob to flee, get out of here, go back to our home country. And in the meantime, it would be a good, good time for you to find a wife. So Jacob heads out. We saw last week, as he's journeying, this is chapter 28, he's now the bearer of the blessing. But now in 28, for the first time, he has a personal encounter with God himself. As he slept, he dreamed of this great flight of stairs from earth to heaven. And angels are going up and down. And God stands at the top, and he speaks to him. And he personally extends his promises to Jacob. This is important. As he heads out, as he journeys east, you'll see that in verse 1 of chapter 29, East journeying east is a bad sign. That usually means moving away from God's presence. So as he journeys into spiritually and physically dangerous territory, God is saying, I'll be with you. I'll keep you. I'll stay with you. That's not insignificant in what he uh, comes against now in chapter 29. So 29, our text this morning. Jacob arrives after this long journey to the region where he's looking for Laban, who's his uncle. He comes to a well. We've seen that before in chapter 24. The well, the presence of the well encourages us to contrast chapter 24 and Abraham's servant coming to the well to find a wife for Isaac with Jacob coming to the well in roughly the same place and trying to find a wife there. If you, I don't have time to get into it, but if you want a good Bible study for this week, Put 24 and 29 side by side and compare and contrast. You will see there what's lacking in Jacob's maturity compared to Abraham's mature, aged, faithful servant in chapter 24. So the shepherds are at the well. Jacob sees shepherds. And they're waiting so that all the shepherds get there so they can move this big rock, move this big stone off the well, and they can all water their flocks. It's a big rock. They need multiple shepherds. And so Jacob asked them if they know about Laban. Hey, you guys know Laban? They say they do. And actually, here comes his daughter, the shepherdess, Rachel. She's coming right now. Jacob sees Rachel. 
He summons his strength and moves the rock by himself as a show to impress Rachel. And then he waters Laban's flock for Rachel. Everything seems to be going so well. It's like a Disney story. You know, he moved the stone. Rachel, he, he tells Rachel that he's Laban's kinsman. She runs to get Laban. She's so excited. Laban's excited. He runs back. They welcome Jacob into their home. And things are going great for a month. Everything's going swimmingly after the first 14 verses. And then verse 15. Things start to go sideways after a month. Laban asks Jacob about wages. No more freeloading, Jacob. Let's talk wages here. And Jacob, having fled for his life from his home, has no money of his own. He's smitten with Rachel. And so Jacob proposes to Laban that he works seven years as a price for Rachel. Make this into a transaction. And it's a high bride price. At the time, scholars say bride prices would have been less years of labor. Seven years is significant labor for the price of a bride. But Jacob's smitten. We get that very clearly. Verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel. Verse 20, Jacob served Laban seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. And then verse 30, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. He loves Rachel, and so he's willing to do the extra work, and it seems like just a few days. And yet, at the same time, Laban's turning this into a transaction. He's trying to get all he can. He's milking Jacob for all that he's worth. And Jacob's strong. He moves the stone. He's a good worker. And he's getting milked by Laban for all he can. So now the stage is set for our main characters, for Jacob, for Rachel, for Leah, and this colossal family mess. And all three are going to experience pain and hurt here in their own ways. And they're going to learn to look to God in their needs. So number one here, Jacob was exploited by his own uncle. Number one is Jacob, exploited by his own uncle. This is verses 21 to 30. The writing has been on the wall with Uncle Laban. We got, we got a little hint back in chapter 24 when Laban comes in for the first time. We're told how Laban responded so quickly to the display of wealth that Abraham's servant put forward. And now Laban, we see, is trying to turn kinship into business and into wages. He wants a price for his daughters. And there is no mention in Genesis 24 of a price for Rebekah. Rebekah is given, as far as we know. Rachel will cost Jacob payment. Then also we see that Laban doesn't give a straight answer to Jacob's proposal in verse 19. He's taking advantage of all he can get from Jacob for Rachel. And then in verse 21, Jacob finally has to demand his wife. The seven years are up. Laban act, maybe Laban's acting like he's not even aware that the seven years are up. And Jacob has to come to Laban and say, all right, the time's up. Give me my wife. Laban is a swindler and a lover of money. So Laban throws the wedding feast reluctantly. Likely there's drinking. And of course, it's dark. It says it's in the evening, verse 23. Of course, it's dark in the ancient world without electric lights. Uncle Laban sneaks his older daughter, Leah, in to marry Jacob instead of Rachel. And then we have in verse 25, 
one of the most anticlimactic lines, perhaps in the history of the world. Look at verse 25. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. We'll come back to that in just a few minutes. When Jacob asked Laban, what is this you have done to me? Why have you deceived me? We're supposed to see the irony here. Jacob has been the deceiver. Now he's deceived. The trickster has been tricked. The one who cheated has been cheated. And when Laban answers, this is one of the two most important verses in this chapter, in this section. Laban answers in verse 26, it is not done so in our country to give the younger for the firstborn. At this point, we should start scratching our heads and asking about this talk of the older and the younger. Older and the younger. Where have we seen this talk before about older and younger? Jacob and Esau, of course. God had foretold to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. Chapter 25, verse 23. Laban, no doubt, he knows Jacob's story. He knows about the prophecy. He knows about the birthright. He knows about the blessing of Abraham. And Laban says, in essence, in verse 26, Jacob, we do it the world's way here. We don't do it God's way. Which leads to one of the most important questions in the chapter, apart from the obvious ones we mentioned at the beginning. Isn't Jacob just getting a dose of his own medicine? Jacob deceived his father. Now Laban deceived Jacob. All is right with the world. Jacob gets what he deserves, right? I don't think Laban's comment in verse 26 will let us go there. These are not equal and opposite deceptions. This is not getting Jacob back for what he's done. The difference lies in God's promise. The difference lies in how it all relates to God. God told Rebecca in chapter 24, Rebecca, she's like a new Abraham. Rebecca is a sterling character. God told her the older will serve the younger. The God of Abraham doesn't do things the way of the world. His ways are higher. He makes foolish the wisdom of the world. And yet Laban has the gall to tell Jacob, that's not how we do things around here. We do it our way, not God's way. It is a shocking thumbing of his nose at Jacob's God. Just a, just a quick uh, taste of what's coming ahead. In Genesis 48, Jacob's son Joseph brings his two sons to Jacob to bless them uh, at the end of Jacob's life. And Joseph cues up his oldest son to come to Jacob's right hand and his youngest son to come to Jacob's left. And what does Jacob do? crosses his hands. And he's not doing it to frustrate Joseph. He's not doing it to spite him or the grandsons. He's doing this because he's honoring that God doesn't do it the world's way. 
God has his peculiar ways, which is a benefit to Joseph and was the object of his belief and is something he wants to tell to the next generation and move on. God doesn't do it the world's way. So Jacob is deceived, but he doesn't lash out. He marries Rachel a week later, as Laban prescribes. He works seven more years for Rachel. In chapter 21, when Jacob is about to finally flee from Laban and return home, he says to his wives, the God of my father has been with me. That's chapter 31, verse 5. The God of my father has been with me. In all this chaos, in all this mess, in all this mistreatment, God has been with me. Immature and passive, as Jacob comes off in chapter 30, I do believe it was his encounter with God that we talked about last week in chapter 28 that gets him through. In particular, verse 15, chapter 28, verse 15. Behold, God said to Jacob, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. He's on the road. He's journeying. He's headed toward Haran. And God says, I will keep you as you go there, potentially into harm's way in the east. And Jacob trusted God to do so, which might help some of us this morning who find ourselves like Jacob, exploited. Do you find yourself tricked? Do you find yourself used or taken advantage of? This world is full of Labans who veil their true selves, and they speak deceptively, and they use their power and position to exploit others, not help others. Perhaps you can think right now of some particular person or multiple persons who are taking advantage of your hard work, your skills, your hunger to do certain things, your finances, your knowledge, and you sense the injustice of it all, and you wonder, is this left up to you to rectify? I want you to hear this this morning. God knows God sees, he will right every wrong. The day of reckoning for all abuse, all exploitation, all unrighteous trickery will come. And God will more than make up for how you have been wronged. He knows your pain and your hurt. And he wants to relieve you of the burden that thinking, of thinking that you have to make it right. Now, sometimes God does give us opportunity to participate in the reckoning. But he doesn't mean for us to carry the burden. You don't have to make the world right. You can't. You don't have to be God. You can't. Trust him and ponder how you might be able to help others and to rise up to protect the weak, which is what Jacob does in the next chapter when he gathers his family and he flees from Laban to protect his family. So sadly, Jacob is not the only one mistreated here in the story. Jacob's also the agent of pain for his wife. So now number two, these are brief for two and three. Number two, Leah felt hated by her own husband. This is chapter 29, 31 to 35. There's more about Leah in chapter 30, verses 9 to 21. Leah is the older sister. 
She is not the one that has the Disney moment at the well. That's Rachel. It's always about Rachel. We learn about Leah in verse 17 that her eyes were weak. Maybe she was cross-eyed. Maybe she had some kind of deformity. Maybe there just wasn't a sparkle in her eye that they found attractive in particular in the Middle East 4,000 years ago. But one thing's very clear. Rachel was beautiful. Leah is not. It's made clear in the next verse. Rachel is beautiful in form and appearance. And poor Leah, she becomes the emblem of cosmic disappointment in verse 25. See if you can track with me on this. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. Tim Keller uh, preached a whole wedding homily on Leah. I would have loved to just do the whole sermon on Leah, but we're doing expositional preaching. We got to get through this whole thing. Leah can't be the whole sermon. So Leah is just a short part here. But he talks about Leah as being emblematic of the kind of disappointment we all feel about the biggest things in life at certain times. He says, when you get married, no matter how great you think marriage is going to be, when you get into a career, no matter how great you think the career is going to be, in the morning, it is always Leah. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, the longings which rise in us when we first fall in love or first think about some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am speaking, Lewis says, about the best possible ones. So this life, we'll learn, in this life, it's always Leah. That won't always be the case. But it's a vital truth for us to learn, and it's a terrible reality for Leah to live. Not only is Rachel loved more than her, but literally, Leah is hated, the text says. Verse 31, the Lord saw that Leah was hated. So what does Leah do? If she can't get her husband's love with her looks, perhaps she can secure it with bearing him sons. So verses 32 to 35 then are the record of Leah seeking Jacob's love through bearing his children. Verse 32, first there's Reuben. His name means, see, a son. See me, Jacob. See, a son. And she says, now my husband will love me. Not true. Verse 30, Simeon, which sounds like herd. Sounds like the Hebrew word for herd. And she means, the Lord has heard that I am hated. Verse 34, she has Levi, which sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. And now this time, she says, I will be attached to my husband because I have borne him three sons. You see, her life is devolving around what she doesn't have. And finally, verse 35, after three strikes, God gives her another. She has a son named Judah, which sounds like the word for praise. And she says, this time, I will praise the Lord. This time, no more trying to earn my husband's love through childbearing. This time, I will turn Godward, and I will praise Yahweh, the Lord. There's more to say about Leah. 
But uh, she has two more sons. Let me ask you about this. Let me ask you about the connection to us. Do you, have you felt hated or unloved like Leah? Have you felt overlooked by someone that mattered to you? Have you felt painfully underappreciated? Take comfort in this this morning. This is so sweet. God is the kind of God who loves to choose the overlooked. He loves to love the hated. He loves to comfort the neglected. He loves to take special notice of those who aren't getting noticed. Verse 31. Look at verse 31 again. The Lord saw that Leah was hated. So what does he do? Does he pile on? Does he hate her as well because she's hated? That's not God's character. It draws him out to help. He is a gracious and merciful God. When he sees your neglect, when he sees you being hated, underappreciated, overlooked, unloved, that draws out his father's heart to meet you in the time of need. So Jacob was deceived by his own uncle. Leah was hated by her own husband. And now Rachel felt forgotten by God. This is verses 30, chapter 30, verses 1 to 8, and then verses 22 to 24. Of the three main characters in this chapter, Rachel is the one in the most spiritually dire circumstance. Jacob's mistreatment by the hand of his uncle likely draws him closer to God. And we just saw Leah's neglect from her husband eventually awakens her to her need for God. But Rachel's barrenness not only causes envy for her sister, chapter 30, verse 1, and tension with her husband in the following verses, but even bitterness toward God. She comes to Jacob to demand children, just like Jacob demanded his bride from Laban. She says, give me children or I die which it's, it's just classic declaration of idolatry. When we say, give me this, or don't take this, or I die, it's the telltale sign that idolatry is developing or has developed. You don't miss the tragic irony with these sisters. Leah has children and is dying for her husband's love. Rachel has her husband's love and is dying for children. And so what does she do? Like Sarah did in Genesis 16, she gives her servant to go into her husband, take as a wife to produce children, to raise up children for her. So Bilhah, her servant, does bear two sons with Jacob. Here's the thing. God had childbirth in store for Rachel. If she had only waited on his timing. I said there were two most important verses in this story. The first one was chapter 29, verse 26, where Laban thumbs his nose at God and says, we don't do younger before the older here. We don't do it God's way. I think the second most important here, or the other of the two most important, Verse 22 in chapter 30. Then God remembered Rachel. 
which doesn't mean that he had forgotten her, but that at long last, after the painful passage of time, God finally took action, the action he planned to take all along. Having seen her and remembered her all along, this, this language of remembrance is covenant language in the book of Genesis. Chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah and brought him through the flood to dry land. Chapter 9, verses 15 to 16, God promised that he would remember his covenant and never flood the whole earth again. Chapter 19, verse 29, God remembered Abraham and he saved his nephew Lot before destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And perhaps you feel forgotten by God. In Christ, he has not forgotten you. He almost certainly will not do it in your preferred timing, but he will remember you in his perfect timing. God remembers those who feel forgotten. And this very idea of remembering speaks to the fact how difficult having our timing be different than God's timing often is. And yet God has a purpose for us in that. He means for us to trust him while we wait. He's teaching trust. So let me just read here as we finish. Let me read verses 22 to 24. And let's glory in God in his perfect timing manifesting his blessing and remembrance on Rachel. Verses 22 to 24, God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. And we'll see in a few weeks that God not only receives her thanksgiving for taking away the reproach, but he also answers that prayer. And he gives her another son named Benjamin in chapter 35. And it doesn't come without pain. As we come to the table, we look to how each of these three main characters in Genesis 29 and 30 anticipate the great hero to come, as you know, as the story continues. Jesus will be for us a better companion in our pain than Jacob and Rachel and Leah. If you've been tricked or deceived, Jesus knows what it's like to be dealt dirty. He knows what it's like to be tricked, to be lied to, to be treated unfairly. And Jesus knows what it's like to feel forgotten, to feel forsaken, to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, like Rachel, God did indeed remember his own son. Not immediately. And it didn't mean that there was no Gethsemane and no Golgotha and no cross. God remembering Jesus didn't mean he spared him of pain and of waiting, but he remembered him and rose them up from the grave. And finally, like Leah, perhaps you felt unloved, even hated or neglected. Jesus knows what it's like to be 
to be despised and rejected and rescued for God's purposes. And Leah is the one who gives birth to Judah. That's the tribe. From Judah will come the tribe, not only of the kingship in the nation of Israel, but of the Messiah himself. Not only does Leah learn in being neglected to turn Godward and not to her husband for her spiritual bearings, but she becomes the one through whom God will save the world in Christ. So brothers, let's come to the table. Musicians can come. We will bring to you the bread. If you want to take and hold it, we'll then eat together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.